I am so excited to be here with you today. I'm just, it's just good to be together. This morning, as we were just singing, I was thinking about how good it is to sing and not hear myself sing. How much better I sound when y'all are all singing with me. And I was laughing too because, you know, Robert was clapping on that first song, which I love that first song. I, I didn't really know that one. And, and I, I want to now put it on Spotify. But uh, I was sitting there going, hey, if I watch him, I can clap in rhythm, you know? So, because if I do it on my own, it ain't happening. But uh, it is good to be back together again. It is good to have technology available so that the people, who aren't willing or aren't able, don't feel good about coming back to church yet, uh, we're still able to stay connected with y'all and, and we're still able to worship together in some way. So I'm just doubly thankful. I, I'm thankful for air conditioning. Anybody else? Air conditioning is a good thing. Anybody ever talks about the good old days? Just remember they, they didn't have indoor plumbing and air conditioning back then. So these are the good old days. Um, but I'm excited about this particular study of the book of Ruth. Ruth is a short book, and it's often overlooked. And one of the reasons it's so overlooked is because there's no miracles in this story. You know, we have this fallacy, a lot of us, that in biblical times, people were walking along having these personal, out loud dialogues with God on a regular basis, and they were seeing miracles happen left and right. And it's not really the case. Miracles happened, God spoke, but it was rare. Most people went their whole lives without witnessing a miracle, without hearing the audible voice of God. In the book of Ruth, there are no miracles. No one walks on water. No one rises from the dead. The seas don't part. God doesn't speak out of a burning bush. If you've got one of those red-letter Bibles where the words of God are all in red letters, there's no red letters in the book of Ruth. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why this is such a good story for us to read right now, because it reminds us the people in biblical times had to, had to experience God the same way we do, had to struggle to figure out what is God saying, what is God doing, I don't understand why this is happening, how should I respond? It's also a really good story. It's a, it's a love story, but it's not your standard love story. It's nothing like those stories that you, that you see in the gas station romance novels. I'm assuming, I, you know, honest to goodness, I've never read one, but you walk through the gas station, you see them, and, and guys like me think, well, why don't my abs look like that? But I'm just assuming that, that Ruth and Boaz didn't look that way. This is a story that's, that's very earthy, it's very true, because it actually happened. And if you've never read it, or if you're only vaguely familiar with it, I think you're going to really enjoy the way God takes them through this process and bringing them to a place of peace and hope. So in 1927, there was an S-4 submarine off the coast of Massachusetts that accidentally collided with a Coast Guard vessel and sunk. And all men aboard were killed. But it took days for them to die. And the process there was this massive rescue effort. Navy divers were doing everything they could to try to rescue them in that, in that sunken submarine, that crippled vessel. And in the last days, there was this heartbreaking moment where the divers heard knocking coming from the inside of that steel vessel, and they realized that the people knocking were, were using Morse code. And being Navy men themselves, they could interpret, and they, what they heard was the same message over and over again, is there any hope? Is there any hope? 
In chapter 1 of the book of Ruth, the main character is actually a woman named Naomi. Ruth takes center stage in chapter 2. But Naomi is a woman who we're going to see suffers a series of tragedies and heartbreaks and feels like God has turned on her and the world is lost to her. And she wishes that God would speak to her in red letters. She wishes she had some answers, some guidance. And what you're going to see is that God is working in her life in ways she couldn't see. The story begins with Naomi and her husband Elimelech and her two sons, Malan and Kilion, moving to Moab. Moab was the country right across the Jordan River from Israel. And they move because of economic reasons. There's a famine in Israel. There's food in Moab. They move over there. And in the course of time, her boys grow up, and they both choose to marry Moabite women. One marries a woman named Orpah. The other marries a woman named Ruth. And then as time continues to go on, Elimelech dies, and then so does Malin and Killian. We don't know if it happened all at the same time. Maybe there was a, an epidemic of some kind. Maybe uh, there was a, a terrible accident or, or, or a military invasion, or maybe it just one after the other, they dropped dead on her. But either way, if you're Naomi, you've just lost the three men in your life. And as a woman, that leaves you in a very vulnerable position. Not only are you dealing with grief, you're dealing with the thought, how am I going to make it? How am I going to survive? Her only thought is, uh, my hope is I can go back home to Bethlehem. At least people know me there. At least maybe I can live off the charity of others. But she says to her two daughters-in-law, listen, I, I, know, I know that we're bound together by marriage, but my sons are dead. And so you're not bound to me anymore. And I have no money to feed you. If you go home with me, you're going to starve. There's no, I don't have any other sons for you to marry. And no Israelite man is going to marry a Moabite woman. My sons broke the law of God by marrying you. So stay here. Go back to your people. Go back to your gods. I've got nothing for you. And Orpah says, you know what? You're right. And she kisses her mother-in-law and she goes home and later becomes a famous TV talk show host. And, and, then, and Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. And we're going to pick up with verse 15. In verse 15, you're going to hear the words of Naomi, but then you're going to hear words in response from Ruth. And these are some of the most beautiful words ever spoken. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Now let's skip on to verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Remember that sentence. It's not going to come into play this week. But in the weeks ahead, you're going to see this sentence, which if you read it for yourself, you'd probably think, oh, I'll just skim over that. That's just an unnecessary detail. Guess what? There's no unnecessary details in Scripture. This becomes a very big sentence indeed. So this, I think, is the perfect time in our lives to study 
the book of Ruth. I didn't know this. I planned all my sermons back in November of 2019. I had no idea what would be happening in 2020. If I had, I probably would have done a Rip Van Winkle and just skipped this year altogether. But I had no idea how appropriate this sermon series would be right now, right here. Because every one of us is struggling to find hope, especially with what's going on in the world around us. People worried, am I going to catch this virus? If I catch this virus, will I survive? If I survive, will I have after effects? What's going to happen to my family members? What's going to happen to the people I know who have it? What's going to happen to my job? What's going to happen to my savings if the economy continues to struggle, if we continue to be limping along as we are? We worry about the divisions in our country. Just today, I read an article by a Christian political author that I really respect, and he talked about how there's real fear. We're so divided as a nation, there's real fear that no matter who wins the election, the other side is going to contest it. And if that happens, what's going to happen to us? Is that going to lead to another civil war? Is there hope for us? And then, on top of all of that, there's the, the everyday issues that everyone deals with. I, as a pastor, happen to know, and some of you have realized this too, that every family is struggling in some way. Every family has some heartbreak they're dealing with, they're recovering from. Every family has some anxiety, some stress that's crippling them, that's driving them to their knees. And maybe for you, it's Who's going to take care of my elderly parents? I've got to work full time. I can't be there. How, what's going to happen to them as they age and can't take care of themselves? What about my child who's struggling with addiction? What about my child who won't talk to me? What about my child who's struggling with mental or emotional issues? What about my marriage and, and my wife and I can't get together on this one point? What about, what about my job? What about my health? Every family, every person is struggling. Is there hope? We feel like those men on that submarine wanting to say, is there any reason to think things are going to get better or is this as good as it gets? Is there any reason to hope that there's something good on the horizon or should I just settle in and accept the new normal? Is there any hope? Naomi would have asked that question in chapter 1. But I've got a spoiler for you. By the end of the story, by chapter 4, She's singing a brand new tune. By the end of the chapter, by the end of the story, Naomi understands how to see her circumstances through the eyes of Almighty God. And everything changes. And if she could be here, there are certain things I think she would want us to know. Based on the course of her life and the changes that occur in her life, there are three things I think she would want to say to us. And number one is, God is still blessing you even when you can't see it. You see, Naomi in chapter 1 is convinced that anything that means anything to her is gone. She's lost it all. And even when her daughter-in-law says this beautiful statement of loyalty and love, her response is basically, well, whatever. It's your funeral. I gave you my advice. If you want to ignore it, come on home with me. That's fine. She shows up in her hometown, and rather than rejoice to be back among the people she grew up with, the people who loved her, she says, God has sent me away full and brought me home empty. God has taken it from me. God has testified against me. God has stolen my husband and my sons. She doesn't know what she has. 
There was a woman some years ago in Southern California who brought home a painting from a thrift shop, a painting she paid $5 for. That's a picture of it. Yes, that is a painting. It's not graffiti. That's actual art. And she brought it home, and then she had a friend who was an art expert who saw it and said, you know what? That's a Jackson Pollock. That's an original by Jackson Pollock. Now, if you're not familiar with Jackson Pollock, that's pretty much what all of his paintings look like. And in case you're wondering, I was, so I got online and I Googled Jackson Pollock. I wanted to see how much are his paintings worth today. Do you know that right now you can go on eBay and bid on an original Jackson Pollock, but the starting bid is three and a half million dollars? She paid five. Now, I want you to ask yourself, what do you think her husband's reaction was when, she saw, when he saw her carry this canvas into the house for the first time? In my imagination, he said, what on earth are we supposed to do with that thing? I mean, buy me some tools if you want. Buy me some golf clubs. Buy me some fishing tackle. If you want art, buy me one of those paintings of dogs playing poker. At least that's fun to look at. But, but what am I supposed to do with a canvas that looks like a three-year-old threw paint at it? But I guarantee you, he said different things. His attitude changed once he started getting phone calls from art dealers who were mentioning figures in the seven digits. He didn't know what he had. Naomi didn't know what she had either. She thought she had lost it all. And yet here was this woman, this, this young, foreign, pagan woman, Ruth, who would turn out to be worth more to her than seven sons. And we're all like Naomi, deep down inside. We don't know how much God has blessed us. We miss his blessings. You know why? Because we're too focused on what we don't have. Have you ever done this before? Have you ever, have you ever looked at what someone else has and said, why don't I have that? Why don't I have that kind of car? Why don't I have that kind of house? Why don't I have that kind of spouse? Why don't my kids act the way their kids act? Why don't I have that kind of job? We're so focused on what we don't have we miss the blessings he's given us. We're like children who our parents have, have sacrificed to provide for, and we say, well, that's not what I wanted. I wanted what he has. Have you ever wondered why the Bible commands us over and over again to be thankful? Let me tell you something. It is not because God gets his feelings hurt if we don't say thank you. Y'all understand that, right? God does not need our thanks. He does not need our gratitude. He is not insecure up there in heaven saying, no one appreciates me. That's not God. God doesn't need anything from us. He commands us to be thankful because we need to express gratitude. Because when we express gratitude, that's when we realize how good we have it. That's when we realize how blessed, how truly wealthy we are. So try it. Try it today, and you'll see God is blessing you in ways you cannot even see. Second thing, I think Naomi would say to us, God can work any situation out for his good, out for our good, out for good in general. See, the death of Naomi's husband and her two sons was a terrible tragedy, but Naomi blamed it on God. God has brought this calamity upon me. And yet there's no indication in Scripture that God did it. There are times in the Bible where you see God render judgment on a particular person and that person dies. Think of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. But there's no indication that happens here. 
My bet is that God was weeping just as hard as Naomi was, if not more, because she loved those three, because he loved those three men even more than she did. And, and when her two sons married pagan women, they were breaking the law of God. They were sinning against Almighty God. God did not ordain that, but you can see what he did. Okay, if that's what you're going to do, I'm going to use this to make myself known to these two women so that one of them might believe. And Ruth became a believer in Almighty God. You see what God does? He takes a tragedy and he uses it to bring Naomi home to the promised land. He takes a terrible sin and uses it to make Ruth a believer in the God who saves. God does not ordain sin and God does not execute tragedy, but God takes the worst of our tragedies. He takes our biggest sins. He takes even the things the devil tries to do against us. And he works them into his plan. Nothing can stop the plan of God. Not our faithlessness, not the the fecklessness of this world. Nothing can stop the plans of God. God is going to redeem who he's going to redeem. God is going to accomplish his purposes. There's one thing that can stop God's will from being done in your life. One thing. You know what it is? It's you. If you choose to stop following, then God's plan will not be accomplished in your life. See, God has a plan for you, a purpose for you, and it's magnificent and it's wonderful and it's awe-inspiring. And I'm telling you this because I know, I've been a pastor long enough to see it, that when people enter a time of tragedy or incredible stress or fear or anxiety, oftentimes, oftentimes, that's when they drift away from God. They turn their backs on Him. They say, I just don't have the time. I don't have the mental energy. Sometimes they say, I'm angry with God. There's nothing wrong with being angry with God, by the way. David, Jeremiah, Job, all through the Scriptures we see people shaking their fist at heaven and saying, God, why? Why? But you notice what they do. They take their anger to God. They don't walk away from Him. They shake their fist at God. They don't walk away and, and try to do things on their own. Why, why in the darkest moment of your life would you cut yourself off from the one who can set you on your feet again? And if you think to yourself, well, I I know, but right now I'm going through such an emotional time. I don't want to come to church because I'll just cry and, and people will see me cry and I'll be embarrassed and it'll be a distraction. And my response is, what better place to weep than among your brothers and sisters, the family of God, where we can lift you up in prayer, where we can at least know that we need to bear your burdens alongside of you. That's our job. And I know some would even say, well, Jeff, you don't understand. The last time I went through tragedy and trial, nobody from the church reached out to me. So I, I just, I don't have any more use for it. And I know that happens. And I know that happens, and sometimes it's my fault because you were hoping I would be there for you, and I wasn't. And I guarantee you there's people sitting in this room or people watching at home who would say, yeah, there was that time when I was really hoping to get a phone call from you, when I was hoping you'd show up at my hospital room, when I was hoping you'd come by my house and you didn't. And if that's true, let me just say, I don't have an excuse. I'm sorry. I'm a sinner. That's my excuse. I'm going to let you down. If I haven't let one of you down yet, it'll happen. I promise you. 
And yes, when you're going through hard times, your life group should surround you. They should bring you meals. They should mow your yard. They should call you. They should swamp you with love. And sometimes that doesn't happen, and you have every right to be disappointed. And and if you are angry, call me and ream me out because I need it. I can take it. That's fine. But don't turn your back on God. Don't punish yourself by blaming God for our failures. That makes no sense at all. See, take your trials, your tragedies, your stress, your anxiety, your fear, your sorrow to him. He can take the worst thing that possibly happened to you and he can make it something, he can make something good come out of it. Trust him in that. And then the third thing I think Naomi would say to us is, God's plan may seem strange to us at the time, but it's always, always, always right. If you would have talked to Ruth in chapter one and said, what do you want God to do for you? She would have said, I want my husband and my sons back. That's it. There's nothing else. But God had other plans. Nobody in the book of Ruth rises from the dead. Malan and Kilian and Elimelech stayed dead. Naomi never sees them again in this life. But in the process of what God ends up doing, Naomi's heart changes and she becomes a new person. It's really remarkable to see. You're going to love it in chapter 4. But even so, if you were to talk to Naomi at the end of chapter 1 and say, Hey, Naomi, guess what? I know because I'm from the future. I know that... Uh, God is going to lead you through this process of grief and he's going to show you his faithfulness and you're going to become a new person, a much more joyful person, a much stronger person. And meanwhile, God's going to write your story down in his word and millions of people are going to read it and it's going to inspire them for the rest of time. Naomi, if she heard that, would say, okay, I just want my husband and sons back. But by chapter four, she would say, God knew what he was doing. I don't know why I ever doubted. See, the Bible understands. The Bible compares us to children. Have you ever noticed this? The Bible compares us to children when it's not comparing us to sheep. And I don't know which one's more insulting, but they're both accurate. We're like children. Remember when you were a kid and everything, your opinion of, of your parents' love was all based on your happiness at the moment. Mom and dad took me to McDonald's. Hooray, they love me. Mom just made me do my math homework. Mom hates me. Dad just gave me Twinkies for breakfast when mom wasn't looking. Oh, dad loves me. Dad just took me over his knee and spanked me. Oh, dad hates me. You see, we base our opinion of our parents' love on our happiness when our parents' main goal isn't to make us happy. Now, don't get me wrong. Every good parent wants to see their kids happy, and every good parent loves to give their child good gifts and take them on fun experiences, but that's not our main job. Our main job is that our children are ready for life. And so looking back on my life, looking back on my childhood, I can tell you it's the things my parents taught me more than the things they gave me that made them good parents. It's the lessons they taught me, some of them very painful lessons. It's the things they taught me, not the things they gave me, that I owe them the most for. In the same way, God God loves to see us happy. But trust me, the next time you eat good food, the next time you laugh at something that's genuinely funny, the next time you enjoy the presence of, of people you love, the next time you have any good experience at all, it came from God. He gave it to you. 
That's a sign that he wants you to be happy, but that's not his main goal. You want to be happy, but God is trying to make you holy. If you've ever wondered why there's always, it's so hard to be a faithful Christian, it's because you, want, you expect God to make you happy, and God's trying to make you holy. You want God to take you to Disneyland every day, and God says, no, 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 I'm trying to get you ready for eternity. And the sooner you grow up and realize this is what God's trying to accomplish, and it's actually what I should be aiming for. Instead of just focusing completely on my temporary short-term happiness, I should be saying, yes, Lord, make me holy. And it changes once you make that mind shift, that paradigm shift inside. It changes the way you look at the circumstances of your life. And the next time some wave of disappointment, some wave of tragedy or anxiety comes into your life, you don't respond by saying, where are you, God? Instead, you say, okay, Lord, here we are. We're in the middle of the storm again. What are you going to do in this? I'm looking to you to show me what steps should I take, what lessons should I learn, how can I represent you well, because this is the opportunity. I hope it doesn't last long, because this is no fun, but you know that, but don't let me miss what you're trying to accomplish. See, the disciples, they had, a, had to learn that the hard way. They had given up everything to follow Jesus. They put their eggs in his basket, all of them. And all along, they're hoping and praying, sooner or later, this is going to pay off. You see James and John get Jesus off in a corner and say, okay, don't tell the other ten we said this, but when you become king, we want to be on the right and the left beside your throne. All of them were thinking that way. And then came that day when Jesus rode that colt of a donkey into Jerusalem, and the whole city, it seemed, came out and threw their blankets and their, their palm branches on the ground and said, Hosanna, welcome, uh, he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and the disciples were high-fiving and saying, what's well, finally happened, he's going to be king. And then five days later, he's hanging on a cross. And darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. And they didn't realize, did they? They didn't realize that what looked like the worst defeat in the history of humanity was actually the greatest thing that had ever happened. They didn't realize that when it looked like God had abandoned them, He was actually winning the greatest victory they'd ever received. He was actually demonstrating His love more profoundly than anyone has ever experienced. And then on the third day, freedom arose He arose with freedom in his hands. He set us free that day. They came to understand. They finally understood. And Naomi would come to understand as well. See, Naomi comes back to Bethlehem and says, I went away full. God brought me back empty. And Jesus says to her, no, you don't understand. See, there's this passage in Philippians 2 that says that Jesus, although he existed in the very form of God, did not consider his, godless, his godness as something to be held on to and clung to. So he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and died like a servant on a cross. Jesus says, I didn't send you away and bring you back empty. I emptied myself so you could be full. And that's what he says to you and me today. A God who would do that for us. A God who would give up everything so we could have everything. Isn't that someone you can trust in a time of storm? Isn't that you can, someone you can put all of your hope in? There's an old song that says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Can you say that today?